Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you would stand with me, turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, and go down to verse 8. John chapter 2, verse 8. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn it knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, but you have kept the good wine until now. Father, we're all in different places with you. There may be people here in need of salvation or sanctification or just strength. But whatever the need is, Lord, we know that you are the only one that can meet all those needs. And I pray that you would do that today. Take your word today, Lord, and let us apply it to our life in whatever way that we need to. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There was a preacher who once at the end of his sermon said, If you gave me all the beer, wine, and liquor in the world, I would throw it into the river. Right then the music minister said, Please stand up, take your hymnals, and let us sing, Shall We Gather at the River? (laughs) I have the unique opportunity today to possibly offend everyone in here. Whether you are a person who occasionally drinks alcohol or you are a teetotaler like myself, both groups may disagree with some of the things I say this morning. I only ask that you hear me out, pray about what I said, and then let the Holy Spirit be your God concerning this. Look at verse 8 with me. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. One commentator said that when Jesus says, draw out some water, the word is normally used in the New Testament about going to a well. And he believed this was referring to Isaiah chapter 55 where it reads, Ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and you who have no money come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And that is what is happening in our account this morning. As we covered last week, although they did not have the resources and the wine has run out, like the grace of God, Jesus is going to provide everything that they need. And as we make our way through John, we're going to see that often the miracles that Jesus performs will be used to later illustrate his teaching. John 2 is an excellent example of this. 
He placed the cleansing of the temple right after the wedding at Cana to show that the Lord came to create an intimate personal relationship with his church as in a marriage and not just to fix a broken religion. The focus of John's gospel is the Lord's Judean ministry and really only the last part of that. He devoted most of nine chapters, John 12 through 20, to the Lord's last week. And he used one-third of the 879 verses to describe his last 24 hours. The first 11 chapters define the Lord's ministry through John's selective use of seven different miracles. And we will study them to show how John's gospel contains more than meets the eye. Some examples are John 6.1, where, where we are given the feeding of the 5,000. This is followed up in John 6.35, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and when the Pharisees object, Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Then in John 11, Jesus is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead and tells a distraught and grief-stricken Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So keep these things in mind as we navigate our way through the book of John. The end of verse 8 simply records, they took it. Again, let me emphasize the water there was not for drinking. It was for washing in order to remove ritual uncleanness. But now it would seem to the servants that Jesus was telling them that the water was to be drunk instead of the wine. They probably did not first realize that that was because it had actually became wine. They may well have thought Jesus was saying, Here's your solution. Sometimes it's difficult to do what God tells us to do when we look at the situation and the circumstances. It can often look virtually impossible. But as much as we desire to ask so many questions, to dot every I and cross every T, and to know every single detail, God says, just do what I told you to do. I told you last week there were three important characteristics of the servants to note in this story, and I gave you the first two. The first is obedience. The servants didn't argue with Jesus or ask any questions of him. They simply did what he asked them to do. The second is exuberance. The servants filled these huge 20-gallon vessels to the brim, even though they had no idea what would happen next. Now the third is going to be patience. Jesus didn't say, okay, servants, huddle up. Here's the plan. See those big water pots over there? I want you guys to fill them with water. Then as you begin to pour them out to the governor of the feast, a miracle will take place and the water will turn into wine. John will write about it in the second chapter of his gospel and you guys will become famous. It's going to be a fabulous day for everybody. No, Jesus told the servants what to do only, and here's the key, one step at a time. First, they were to fill the water pots. 
And after they had done that, he instructed them to draw the water out and take it to the master of the feast. The miracle occurred only as they faithfully followed each step. I don't know about you, but too often I want to know what steps two through five are going to be before I follow step one. Let me know where all of this is going, Lord. Let me know where I will be next month, next year, and three years from now. Lay it out clearly before me, Lord, and then I'll go for it. But the Lord doesn't work that way. He unfolds his plan for us the same way he did for those servants at the wedding, one step at a time. And the point where we stop obeying is the point where that stops happening. Since this is the first miracle recorded, I think I need to address the fact the miracles are a real thing. Now this is, of course, ridiculed and scoffed at in the age that we live in. In a 2013 article in the New Yorker about faith and belief, Adam Gopnik made the following arrogantly confident statement. He writes, We know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention with the laws of nature. In the same article, Gopnik also concluded, We need not imagine there is no heaven. We know that there is none. And we will search for angels only in vain. Author Eric Metaxas replies to these remarkable claims by rebutting it like this. Of course, the reason God makes these statements has to do with his presuppositions that this world is all that there is. That way of seeing the world outrightly dismisses any possibility of anything beyond the material world of time and space. It can be summed up in the words of, the, of Carl Sagan, who glumly observed, the cosmos is all there ever is and ever will be. I bet he was fun at parties. And so when someone hears that Christ turned water into wine, they view it with the same type of skepticism reserved for Santa Claus and the tooth fairy. There is simply no room in their worldview for anything miraculous. But is this wise or even fair? I mean, is it even possible that Jesus turned water into wine? There's the classic illustration of the Welshman who had destroyed his family through his drinking. Well, he becomes a Christian and now his former drinking buddies begin to mock him. Do you really think the Bible is true? He said, I do. How do you know? He replied, I just trust him. They said, do you actually believe that Jesus turned water into wine? The man thought and said, yes, I do believe that. And I can also tell you in my house he turned beer into furniture. Robbie Zacharias writes of this miracle of turning water into wine. He writes, an incredible history of response has followed these stories, ranging from the reverential to the ridiculous, from the artistic to the philosophical. Capturing the beauty of the conversion of the water into wine, the poet Alexander Pope said, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. 
The sublime description could be reworked to explain all of Christ's miracles. Was it any different in principle for a broken body to mend at the command of its maker? Was it far-fetched for the creator of the universe who fashioned matter out of nothing to multiply bread for the crowd? Was it not within the power of the one who called all the molecules into existence to interlock them that they might bear his weight on the water? Naturalism, by its purpose, engineers the displacement of the miracles and puts in its place explanations that defy reason. Those who smirk at his walking on the water have forgotten the miracle he had already performed in the very composition of water. Robbie then gives this amazing illustration. He says, think of this for a moment. In just one half ounce of, wa of water, there are six times 10 to the 23rd molecules of H2O. How much is 6 times 10 to the 23rd? A good computer can carry out 10 million counts per second. It would take that computer 2 billion years to count 6 times 10 to the 23rd. Or look at it another way. A stack of 500 sheets of paper is 2 to 3 inches high. How high would that stack be if it had 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets? That stack would reach from the earth to the sun, not once, not ten times, not a thousand times, but more than one million times. Yet in one half ounce of water, God has packed that many molecules. The miracle of walking on water is small for him who created it in the first place. Ravi finishes by saying, The multiplication of bread was but a simple command for him when the very earth was brought forth at his command. The skeptic, of course, will challenge such credulity that accepts wholesale such stories, not realizing that when they swallow a glass of water, it is a miracle in and of itself. Verse 9, please. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now I think I need to address something. Because when some people see this passage, all they can see is the wine. If that's the case, that's a real shame. It's a shame to get hung up on something so trivial and miss the point of the entire passage. One commentator put it like this. He's a very unfortunate reader of this epic who gets himself so distracted by all the empty stone water pots that he misses the real and only point at issue, which is the simple fact that Jesus bears a transforming power, that he turns water into wine, frowns into smiles, whispers of fear into anthems of hope, deserts into gardens, and sin-blistered souls into velour saints by the catalyzing alchemy of a selfless love. Yes, Jesus did turn water into wine. I've heard some people try to twist the original language to say that Jesus turned the water into grape juice. But that just doesn't fit within the text 
And as far as I can ascertain, there is no linguistic or textual basis for making such a claim. Another related argument is that by creating alcoholic wine, Jesus would have been promoting drunkenness, which the Bible clearly identifies as being sinful. This is also not a valid argument. Now, why would I say that? Well, think about this. Was Jesus promoting gluttony when he multiplied the fishes and the loaves far beyond what the people could possibly eat? Of course not. Creating a substance that can be abused does not make one responsible when another foolishly chooses to abuse it. Jesus creating wine was in no way promoting drunkenness. It is true that that verb there, well drunk, literally means to become drunk and is so translated in the other appearances in the New Testament. That does not mean, however, that this particular banquet, banquet had become a drunken frat party. The head waiter was just speaking from his own experience. This remark, as many commentators recognize, formed parts of the stock of trade of a hired banquet master rather than an actual description of the state of intoxication at a particular party. We have to face the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. Let's not be like the one lady that I heard about. She believed drinking alcohol in any amount was always a sin. When the pastor told her that Jesus made water into wine, she just sadly shook her head and said, well, two wrongs don't make a right. We need to keep in mind, as in the case of many places around the world, the water was not drinkable in Jesus' day. And so in order to kill the bacteria and parasites in the water, something needed to be added to it. In Bible days, that something was alcohol. And the alcohol here was wine. It wasn't beer. It wasn't liquor. For this purpose, it was low-content alcoholic wine, but it's much lower than the alcohol content that we have today. And even then, it was mixed with at least three parts water to one part wine. Always remember, drunkenness was strictly forbidden by the Jewish law and was not tolerated in their society. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to give you a general warning concerning the abuse of alcohol and then give you what I think is a fair and balanced biblical viewpoint for those who do choose to drink. So regardless of your convictions, please don't tune me out and I'll try to pull it all together for us. First off, Scripture tells us that drunkenness is a sin. There is absolutely no debate about this regardless of where you stand on the topic of alcohol. Drunkenness is associated with foolishness, selfishness, manipulation, and God's judgment, and it shows us this teaching more than it tells us. That is, it often depicts the evils in drug, of drunkenness in narrative and in poetry. For instance, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah becomes drunk and lies naked in his tent. This begins a chain of events that culminates in a curse on Ham's line. In Deuteronomy 21, it says that one of the characteristics of a stubborn and rebellious son is to be a drunkard and a glutton. But my favorite is found in Proverbs 23 where we read, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? 
Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and when it goes down smoothly. Because in the end it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights, and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I do not feel it. When will I wake up so I can go find another drink? So those are some of the warnings about the dangers of abusing alcohol. Now, I like to address what I believe to be the biblical guidelines if you do choose to drink. I will start with Ephesians 5.18, which gives us this sober warning. I would say no pun intended, but you guys know me better than that. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. The wine symbolism is this. The Holy Spirit is our new wine. Now, people often drink wine or other alcohol to excess to have a sense of peace, relaxation, and joy. That is a counterfeit to what God wants to give us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. In him, there is fullness of joy and never a hangover. Now, when you hear the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, don't think of a glass being filled with water, but rather think of a sailboat that the wind fills. In other words, the wind controls the sailboat because it has filled that sail. It's the same way with both alcohol and the Holy Spirit. Both have the ability to control you. I think all Christians should agree that being controlled by alcohol is expressly forbidden in Scripture, as it is relinquishing our control and our faculties to alcohol rather than the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like in a practical way? If it were me, and I chose to drink, this would be my standard. Even the secular world limits the amount of alcohol you can drink and still drive. Why? Because they understand that too much of it is now controlling you instead of you controlling it. So, once again, if it were me, I would never drink enough alcohol that I would ever have to worry about being pulled over and given a breathalyzer even if I'm not driving. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Now from these and other scriptures, it is clear that alcohol in itself is not inherently sinful. It's like eating food. Eating food can be a blessing. Gluttony is a sin. What the Bible does say is that wine or alcohol is to be treated with as everything else in life, with an eye towards pleasing God in all things. For some people, that means you should never drink alcohol because God has called you to live apart from the consumption of alcohol. You will do well to listen to your conscience and, even more importantly, the Holy Spirit concerning this. However, others will see this as a liberty that they can enjoy, and if they do so responsibly, and avoid overconsumption or drunkenness, if they do this, they are not sinning. My advice is, if you don't drink now, don't look down on those who have that liberty. 
And if you do drink now, do so responsibly. And remember not to offend your brothers and sisters who might have a conviction about drinking. 1 Corinthians 8.9 says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, if you are a person who has no problem with alcohol, you have the scriptural right to do so. What you do not have permission to do is to do it in front of others who may have a problem with it. One final scripture from Corinthians before we turn to our regularly scheduled programming. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be, here's the key word, mastered by anything. Listen, treat alcohol like a loaded gun. If you use it correctly, you can take a loaded gun into the woods and bring home food for your family. But if you misuse a loaded firearm, it causes death or severe disability to you or to those around you. Let me see if I can summarize the biblical teaching on a disciple's approach to drinking. You are free to enjoy God's blessings, including drink, but you must not engage in drunkenness. You must approach alcohol with godly wisdom, remembering that it can lead to being controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. And if, like myself, you had a problem with booze before you got saved, I would strongly recommend to you just abstain from drinking. Listen, controlling Bill Scott's antics are hard enough control when I'm sober. I don't need the tipsy version to deal with. Again, if you have questions or concerns about this, please see me after service. I want to look at one last thing where the Master of the Feast says, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. Know this, my friends. The world will always give you the good wine first. And after your lips are numb, they will switch the good stuff with the Thunderbird and the Boone's Farm. <laughs> the upside being what you don't drink, you can use to descale your shower. <laughs> but isn't that the way of the world and sin? They will give you what is tasty, but after a little while it gets nastier and nastier. Satan gives the pleasure of sin, which the Bible says is for a season, but then he gives the wages of sin, which is what? death but we are assured that the best comes last the devil however will always give you the best first he lures us into sin with promises he cannot and does not intend to keep and he doles out his trinkets up front whatever passing pleasures he does hand out in this life will be the best that will ever be experienced the devil, the devil will never show you where he is taking you. He only shows you the next enticing step. But Jesus always saves the best to last. The world puts its best up front and then things go downhill from there. The text says, but you have kept the best for last. And that's the way Christ is. How does the Christian life start? It starts with pain, doesn't it? Brokenness, sin, and guilt. It begins painful, but it gets better and better until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart 
and you one day actually get to see his face. I love F.B. Meyer here. It's a little lengthy, but well worth our time, as he says it better than I ever could. He writes, The devil ever gives his best first, and when the appetite is somewhat palled, he puts on his worst, even to the worst. Gold at the crown, clay at the foot, feasting with harlots, then famine with swine. Goshen with its pastures, followed by Egypt with its fetters. Ah, you who read this page and are living a heartless, worldly life, make the most of it. It's the best you will ever have. After you have well drunk, there will come coarser taste, more depraved appetites. That which has satisfied will fail to satisfy, and in its stead will come forms of sin and temptation from which at first you would have jumped back crying. Do you take me for a dog that I would ever come to this? The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, has always given something better. As the taste is being constantly refined, it is provided with more delicate and ravishing delights. That which you know of him today is certainly better than that which you tasted when you first sat down at his table. And so it will ever be. The angels as his servants have orders to bring in and set before the heirs of glory things which the eye hath not seen, and man's heart has not conceived but which are all prepared. The best of earth will be below the simplest fare of heaven. But what will heaven's best be? If wine in the peasant's house is so luscious, what will be the new wine in the Father's kingdom? What may we not expect from the vintages of the celestial hills? What will it be to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, not as guests, but as the bride? O hasten on, ye slow-moving days. Be quick to depart, that we may taste that ravishment of bliss. But forever and ever, as fresh revelations break in on our glad souls, we shall look up to the master of the feast and cry, Thou hast kept the best until now. I'll close this morning with one last thought for your consideration. Just remember, For those who know Christ as Savior, this world is as bad as it's ever going to get. And sometimes our Heavenly Father may give us a bitter cup to begin with. Perhaps the cup of conviction of sin. But His purpose is that we might take the cup of salvation. Sometimes He gives us the cup of loneliness that we might drink from the cup of His presence. Or we are asked to drink from the cup of failure that we might remember that we serve Him and him alone. But the day is coming in which our fortune will be reversed and we will be able to echo the words. I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We have been filled to the brim with the grace of God. And one day as we enter into his kingdom we will see things we never dreamed possible. Everything you've ever been afraid of will be gone. And in place of it will be the best of everything you can imagine and much, much more. Heaven is a place where our deepest desires will finally be met. We will be overcome with joy and we'll say, just like the master of the feast, you have truly saved the best until last. The Bible assures us that the best the world has to offer us now is only a hint of what is yet to come. 
The difference will be as different as water to wine. The best is yet to come. And Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you do save the best for last. I pray, Lord, that would cause us to live our life in such a way that we would glorify you always with the end in mind. That's the key to the Christian life, Lord, is to always consider the end. And I pray that you would just, in every heart here, do something, whatever each person individually needs, that would bring us to that place, that we would serve you with all of our heart, truly believing that the best is yet to come. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We're not having a final song, so love one another.